0: Hello and welcome to Uncommon Law, my podcast about true stories from my life experience of over 50 years as a lawyer and trial judge. This is a look at the law from the inside out, stuff they don't teach in law school. This is Judge Rudy Greco, retired justice of the New York State Supreme Court. Every October, the United States Supreme Court or Supreme Court of the United States, or SCOTUS as the acronym uh, has become popular uh, in in use, uh, convenes. And the newspapers are replete with uh, stories about all the issues that the court will be facing, and the important issues they'll be facing in the uh, coming session uh, from October through uh, June when they start rendering decisions on those issues. And uh, that always brings to mind, every year when I read those articles, I I recall my own experience uh, as an attorney that appeared before the United States Supreme Court. Well, when I finally passed the bar, after eight years after I was thrown out of uh, St. John's Law School unceremoniously, um, I... Joined up with my friend from college, Joe Feraldo, who was in private practice. Joe and I, um, in a small partnership, everybody does the work. It's just the two of us and uh, trying to pay the rent, and we're both young guys. And um, Joe had a family. uh, Most of his uncles and uh, his cousins were all named Joseph Feraldo because the the dean of the family was his grandfather, Joe Feraldo, insisted that everybody name their firstborn Joe Feraldo after him, naturally. (laughs) He presided over a scrap iron business on Kingsland Avenue in Williamsburg, and that's where Joe came from. He came from uh, North Brooklyn, Williamsburg, and uh, I came from South Brooklyn, Red Hook, Uh, But we met in college, and we're two Brooklyn guys, and we hit it off uh, despite the North-South divide in Brooklyn. And we became uh, longtime friends. Joe was actually a chemistry major. I was a political science major, and uh, he blames his deviation from chemistry to the law on me, and I I take no responsibility for that. He's a strong-minded guy, and he made up his mind. Somewhere along the line, he decided to become a lawyer, and that was... uh, to my benefit, because he was a great partner and, and a good guy, and he's still my friend after uh, 50 years or 60 years now, almost. Um, Joe's uncle, Dr. Joseph Ferraldo, was a uh, local hero and a notable character in Williamsburg. He was everybody's family doctor. He also owned 20 or so harness racing horses, trotters and, and pacers, and his, the doctor's son was also named Joseph Feraldo, probably the third or the fourth or whatever. And uh, Cousin Joe was a driver. He used to drive his father's horses at the races. And where did they race? They raced at Yonkers, and they raced at Roosevelt Raceway. Yonkers was just outside the city, north of the city in Westchester County. And um, Roosevelt Raceway was in Nassau County, just outside the city. And uh, and it was founded by a guy named... uh, George Morton Levy. George Morton Levy himself was a fascinating story because he was a trial lawyer, defense lawyer, had won many, many murder cases. He, his office was in Freeport in uh, Nassau County, and he won a lot of murder cases. He was a very clever guy, a little diminutive guy, very smart. And in the 1930s, going into the 1940s, just after the war, he figured out that harness racing would be good. Uh, people had come home from the war. People were prosperous. Everybody was working, people looking for diversion and recreation. And he saw, he envisioned a big audience for what was uh, uh, traditionally a, a county fair sport, a county fair thing, harness racing. You know, uh, it was a very um, ex-urban kind of a thing. Farmers and, and people raced their horses and trotters and paces. And George uh, conceived of, went out and begged, borrowed, and stole all the money he could from all the friends he could. And he built Roosevelt Raceway. Roosevelt Raceway was George Morton Levy's baby, and it was a raging success. He had night racing under the lights where all working people could come after work and, and, and. Gamble on the horse racing and and have a good time and have restaurants and and drinks and bars, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a raging success for many, many, many years. And now it's just a big shopping center because he sold off when George died and and the business started to tail off uh, because of television and everything else. But George Morton Levy was a brilliant guy. In fact, I was in a negotiation with him once over a business contract and, and I said, Mr. Levy, I want you to know, he was in his 80s at the time. I said, I want you to know that my client is personally guaranteeing this contract and the performance of this contract. He's personally taking responsibility. And Mr. Levy looked at me and he said, you're a young fellow and I want you to listen to what I'm going to tell you right now and never forget it. A guarantee only as good as the guarantor. And he was 100% right, and I carried that with me all through my legal career and all my life. He's 100% right. A guarantee, guarantee, yeah, wonderful. But how's the guarantor? That's the thing that counts. In any event, because of the uh, Feraldo family involvement in harness racing, Joe uh, was referred a steady stream of business from the harness racing people. Uh, trainers, drivers, owners, uh, officials at the racetrack, etc., etc. And one of them that came uh, to our office uh, was a guy named John Barchi. John Barchi was a young man who grew up in Westbury right near the racetrack, Roosevelt Raceway. His family owned a, a, a a beautiful restaurant, which was a big hangout for all the racing people. It was an Italian restaurant, really nice family-run place, and it was a very pleasant place to be, and it was almost uh, unofficial headquarters after the races or before the races, where all the racing people would wine and dine, and uh, the whole industry met there. Well, John Barchi trained horses, He trained harness horses. He grew up next to the track, and that was his ambition, and he was good. He was an up-and-coming young guy, a very nice guy, hardworking, middle-class guy, and then comes a problem. One of John's horses tested positive for a performance-enhancing drug, and it was a problem because under the New York State Racing and Wagering Board rules and regulations, The trainer of a horse, the named trainer of a horse, is the insurer of that horse's condition. In other words, anything wrong with that horse, it's the trainer's fault, period. No questions asked. John's horse came up positive, as I say, for a prohibited substance. But John himself, when this was administered and when this happened, had been in Florida for days before this happened— When this happened, the day that it happened, and days afterwards, he was down there on horse business doing something else. He was nowhere within 1,500 miles of the racetrack when this happened. And track security is a big show about track security, but it's pretty lax. Once you get past the gate, and you can get past the gates and guards and everything else uh, pretty easily... Uh, anything could happen. Anybody could run into anybody else's barn and inject a horse with a substance without that owner or trainer even knowing about it, or the or the, or the hands, the uh, uh, the trained hands, uh, even knowing about it. And if the horse tests positive, that that trainer is the insurer. He's going to get the penalty. The Racing and Wagering Board brought John up on charges. He took three polygraph exams, lie detector tests. One was before our own expert that we picked, Joe and I, a guy named Victor Kaufman, an ex detective, very famous detective in New York City who was in the polygraph business uh, when he retired. Another one was selected by the state, one of their uh, official employees. And another one was a totally independent one that we both agreed on, both sides agreed on. And John passed every one of those polygraph tests with flying colors. There was no problem. He had nothing to do with this incident and this horse being drugged. He was totally innocent. However, that didn't matter. They suspended John Barchi. But wait, there's more. Not only did they suspend him, but they suspended him without a hearing. He had no hearing. And they simply suspended him. And that we uh, apparently understood right away. It was a blatant violation of the Sixth Amendment prohibition against uh, deprivation of, of due process. You can't take somebody's life, liberty, or happiness away without due process. And uh, life, liberty, and happiness is your job. Is, is the main factor in your life, liberty, your job, and your health, and your liberty, you know, your freedom. So the state racing and wagering board wouldn't hear it. And I had an incident where uh, the state investigator was a guy named Danny Goldberg, who was a decent guy. And and I said, Danny, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, and I know John Barchi had nothing to do with this. And here he is, he's getting suspended. And he didn't even have a hearing. He said, well, that's the way we've been doing this for 42 years. I said, but but doesn't that strike you as as the wrong thing? He said, well, I'm just taking orders. I said, Danny, coming from you, that doesn't sound so good. Just taking orders. Uh, A lot of people said after World War II, they were just taking orders, and it wasn't nice, and it wasn't acceptable, and I don't think it's acceptable. So we're going to go, and we're going to appeal this case. He said, well, we never changed this law, and and we've been doing this for 42 years. You're not going to change the law now. I says, well, you watch. Because we're going to change this law. This is an outright deprivation of, of, of due process. So Joe and I, being a two-man law firm, we had. Uh, uh, we were both involved in each other's work. I did most of the criminal work. He did most of the horse racing. We both did um, commercial work and closings and wills and the bread and butter stock. It was just uh, whatever came up, we just divided it in half. Uh, and immediately, we went and petitioned at the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York uh, for a three-judge constitutional court. This was one week. This is in August 1978, probably one week before that law and that procedure expired. It was, it was uh, invalidated after that. They didn't want to do it anymore. We asked a judge, Sweet, Judge Robert Sweet, made our arguments, said the state law is unconstitutional. We want to get a three-judge constitutional court to hear uh, about the constitutionality and declare the constitutionality of that law, whether it is or it isn't constitutional. Judge Sweet granted our petition. Two or three days later, immediately, the United States Circuit Court of Appeals for uh, the Second Circuit, which is New York, includes New York and Connecticut and, and uh, a couple of other states and New Jersey, um, they convened a three-judge constitutional court. The state sent an assistant attorney general to argue the state's case, and we argued uh, on, on uh, John Borsche's behalf. And sure enough, we got a favorable decision saying, in effect— in in no certain times, the New York State law that 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 permits uh, uh, suspensions without hearings is unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional. Well, we were happy. The state was just as unhappy as we were happy. And the state, because of the uh, declaration of unconstitutionally of its law, just like any state whose law is declared unconstitutional, has a direct right of appeal. A right of appeal directly to the Supreme Court of the United States. So, here we go. Now, these that time, we had another case in the Court of Appeals, a criminal case, a criminal usury case. And the Court of Appeals is the highest court in the state of New York and the Supreme Court of the United States is the highest court in the federal system. And here we are, two young guys with middle-class clients with no money, a little money, and we have these two giant cases, which is the chance of a lifetime uh, to make law. Lawyers uh, would die to have these chances to make... uh, to make law and get these big cases, if they had the appetite to take them on, because it's a big job. We divided the responsibility. I took the main responsibility for the Court of Appeals cases with the usury, which is a criminal one in nature. And Joe took the main responsibility for the uh, racing uh, uh, case going to the Supreme Court of the United States, because he did most of the racing work and he was active also with his family in, in harness racing, and he got the case. And we split the responsibility. However, both of us worked on, on the other guy's case because we we're only two guys in, in, in a small law office, and these are big jobs. That took up a whole year. To get two of them at once simultaneously it was unheard of. And here we had, you know, two big cases of a lifetime coming at the same time. We both came to Washington. Washington, D.C., for the big day, Uh, at the Supreme Court of the United States when John Barchi's case was going to be heard by the highest court in the land. We took the shuttle down to Washington early in the morning. We got to the court early, and we were in the court cafeteria looking around when this little old gentleman came up and said, "I, I don't recognize you young fellas. I've never seen you before up here. And my guess is that this is your first time here. And we said, yeah, actually, it is. You're right. And he said, well, go for the muffins in this cafeteria. They're homemade. You want to have those muffins. He said, they're really good. That's my recommendation. And we thanked him. And that was Justice Harry Blackman of the Supreme Court of the United States who was recommending the muffins. So we followed his suggestion. And they were good. They were really good. Well, coffee, muffins are over. And time comes to go upstairs to the big room where the court sits. And when you get to the doorway, it's very, very impressive, very imposing. A lot of mahogany, a lot of marble, a lot of polished brass, a lot of flags, a big velvet curtain all the way at the back on, uh, of the, of the uh, raised stage, as it were, and all the seats filled with spectators from all over the country and lawyers, and you have to be escorted. Everybody has assigned seats, not the tourists. You know, they get, they get herded into a certain section. But the lawyers all have assigned seats. The court has a full calendar and it's very highly and, and well organized. And the clerk of the court himself a pretty impressive figure. Why? He's dressed in a morning coat, tails and striped pants and, and a white starched uh, shirt front and uh, a bow tie, et cetera. And he's ready to escort us. And he said, Listen, fellas, if your knees are knocking, don't worry. Bobby Kennedy comes here as the Attorney General of the United States, and every time he comes here, his knees are knocking. No big thing. I said, Excuse me. We're two dopes from Brooklyn. We're too stupid to be scared here. Just show us where we sit. Well, he had a laugh, and we all had a laugh, and that took some of the tension out of it. Uh, (laughs) Because the fact of the matter is we were scared. (laughs) And he he escorted us to our assigned seats right up front, right in front of the uh, the bench. I think we were maybe in the second row, perhaps. There were lawyers. You know, there was a a docket of maybe uh, eight or ten cases on that day, and there were lawyers all over the place. And we showed up armed with briefs from all over the country. We had horse racing organizations from Kentucky, California, and everybody uh, where they had done the same thing, and they were all on our side saying, don't suspend people without hearings. It's a deprivation of due process, and they all do it, they all did it. It was really bad because in many cases, we had briefs from, from horsemen who said they were suspended and then served the suspension 30, 60, 90 days a year And afterwards, there was a hearing at which they were exonerated. So this was Alice in Wonderland, and that's what we're talking about. This was an Alice in Wonderland proposition. First the execution, and then the trial. It's crazy. And we had affidavits from numerous horsemen who said after they were suspended and and returned, uh, even after exoneration, they took, in many cases, 10 years to get back to their financial status as it was prior to being suspended, and, and then to, to equal their, their income. It was really damaging. It was nasty stuff. Well, the court comes out, and it's, it's like a, a real theater. Uh, they come out from behind this giant burgundy velvet curtain, and all the justices emerge like the Wizard of Oz from behind the curtain, and they all take seats. And there's all of them across, and the chief judge was dead center, and that was Warren Berger, and the new guy on the court, the new kid on the court, was Justice Rehnquist, who later, William Rehnquist from California, who later became um, the, the chief judge, uh, and fittingly, he was on the, as a junior man, he was on the far right wing, like a, like a wide receiver on that line uh, of a football team, and... We made oral arguments, and by the way, when we got to our, our seat, uh, I don't want to forget mentioning that um, a very nice gesture in the Supreme Court. All the lawyers are given souvenirs of the court. What are they? A little clear glass, tiny little inkwell with a quill pen, a feathered, a goose-feathered quill pen, and uh, I still have mine home, and it's a nice little uh, memento of the Supreme Court. So... Oral arguments took place and the state, uh, the attorney general who was uh, the the lawyer for New York State, the name of the case was Barry V. Barchi because uh, John Barry became the uh, uh, commissioner of the New York State Racing and Wagering Board and the case was brought in his name. And we were the appellees rather than the appellant, rather than we were the winners who were taken by the losers to to an appeal, which was a a, a pleasant uh, surprise. Uh, because we already had a favorable decision in 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 our in our, uh, in our uh, repertoire, and um, the state got up and made uh, the arguments, which were at that point in time pretty familiar and predictable. The state said, um, "Pari mutual racing is the biggest taxpayer, single taxpayer in New York State, and as such, the state has police power." and has to maintain the integrity of racing so that the betting public can feel confident that the racing is not fixed and it's clean and, and uh, their wages are being made on in, in, in level playing fields. And therefore, they need the immediate right to suspend licensees so that if there's any irregularity, the public gets the impression, uh, the correct impression, that this is being pleased promptly and, 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 and uh, justly and rapidly. Well, Joe made the usual arguments and said you can't hang people and then, and then try them later or execute them and, and try them later, and this is a deprivation of due process because you're taking away guys' livelihoods, et cetera, et cetera. And then everybody was familiar with the arguments, and we had, I think we had the better argument. And it was the new judge, Judge Rehnquist, who basically uh, saved the day in, in essence because he got up and he asked a question, and, and Joe was the lead on this one, and he said— How would you feel if the state had an immediate right to suspend licensees for any violation but had to conduct a hearing within 24 hours? Now, we had anticipated that query uh, and and any other question we could possibly think of, and Joe had a ready answer. And he said, Your Honor, we're not here to subvert the entire pari-mutual betting industry, horse racing whether it be thoroughbred or harness racing, our people make a living racing horses, and we want the system to continue and to flourish, and we want it to be honest and open. We have no problem with a hearing that would take place within 24 hours. We have a problem when they don't have a hearing and they suspend people and, and it's held after the, the sentence is, is carried out. And the court took a cue from Justice Rehnquist, and we got a favorable decision. It was slightly modified from the lower one and said the state can do this as long as, and they can suspend people as long as they give us a hearing, uh, give the suspended uh, party a hearing within 24 hours. And that was a big, big victory. And Joe uh, and I broke up eventually because we were doing different work. We started, as, as uh, practices grew, I, I was doing more and more criminal work, and Joe was doing more and more racing work. In spite of the fact that we, we broke up our partnership, there was, no, uh, there was no malice or ill will. We were lifelong friends and remain lifelong friends on, to this day. And five years ago, 45 years after the, uh, or so after the uh, Supreme Court decision, Joe got married, and I officiated at his wedding. Forty-five years later... I look back at my trip to the Supreme Court with great pride and satisfaction. The experience was truly memorable, especially the muffins. Thanks for listening. Come back next week for another episode of Uncommon Law, Lessons They Don't Teach in Law School. I'm Judge Rudy Greco. Court is adjourned.